Hello and welcome to the Coaching Podcast, coaching for success in sport and business. Your host is Emma Doyle, the energy and high performance under pressure coach who is a world leader in unleashing human potential. Buckle up for this high octane session. Let them have it, coach. Hey everybody and welcome to the coaching podcast. I am super excited to be interviewing my, can I say, my TED coach, uh, John Yo from back in the day. He uh, was instrumental during my talk and he's a business coach, speaking consultant and a licensee of TEDx Melbourne. Uh, he really is a game changer in so many levels. I can't wait to talk to him about empathy, engagement, uh, curiosity, and how we're going to simplify complexity in 35 minutes. I'm not sure, but John Yo, welcome to the show. Morning, Emma. How are you doing? Yeah, oh, doing good. I'm morning here anyway. <laughs> <laughs> morning, evening. It doesn't matter what time yeah. of day. If you are listening to this episode, you are in the right place. So we're going to kick it off with coriander in a salad. What do you, what's your take? Cilantro, as they call it here in America. Salad. Yeah. Do you throw it in? Gosh, gosh. I, I must, I'm one of those people that hated it and then suddenly liked it. Can you share with us either a coaching moment that didn't go well or one that went really well and what might be a lesson or two? Or one of each, actually. Go for it. One of each. Okay. Start with the bad one. I think the, the single worst thing that a coach can do is just assume they know more than they actually do. And it, it can really undo you, whether it's not asking the right questions or not thinking through something properly or not being sort of contextually considerate or a whole bunch of things in there that have kind of called, caused things to unwind or unravel. Assumptions is your biggest killer. Mm. And you have to be really, really careful with that one. Mm. Um, gosh, ones that have gone well... It, it, I think it's it's almost the inverse of that. It's about deeply understanding the needs, necessities, values, outcomes for that person, and then being really honed in. And I would argue more committed than the coachee to achieve that than they are themselves. Mm. I think until you can buy into the objective yourself, I think um, all you're really doing is just throwing advice over the fence. So how can a coach just prepare themselves when they're going to do a session. What are some yeah. of the little tricks and tips around being able to, you know, be mindful of our assumptions and just, yeah, how can we best prepare to be in the moment? Uh, the short answer is do your homework. Like, you know, if you're working with an individual, who are they, where they come from, what's their background, what's their isms, you know, how do they like to think and operate? What are their beliefs and values? Where are they going? Where do they aspirationally want to go? And then think about that in the context of their worldview or their experience. Mm -hmm. um, because, I, you know, it's easy to come from your perspective. But without sort of that thoughtful consideration where they are, where they're at, uh, effectively, you might be two steps in front of them. You might be out of context. You might be taking them down the wrong path. You might even take them down a path they've already been down and they're just patiently sort of biding their time. I think the preparation you, know, you can never do too much of. And then once you've got arguably probably, you know, five, ten times more information than you need, look for patterns. Look for common elements. Look, for, I, I'm a big fan of first principles. 
And so, uh, you know, what are, what are the primary elements that if you remove them, actually stop that thing from being? The analogy I like to give is uh, think of a car. You could think Toyota. You could think Ferrari. But another way to think about it is, you know, brakes, accelerator, steering wheel, four wheels. You know, and, and it doesn't matter which car you're talking about. They all have those things. But if you take away any one of those things, you don't, you no longer have a car. You know, and if you can get it down to the the, the raw elements, then you can re-engineer or re-architect, oh, sorry, architect um, the direction and shape of where you want want this new direction to go. First principles. Yes. Before, like in that way. Uh, so you've already made something quite complex. <laughs> something yeah. I could relate to. I I really appreciate that already, and it's it's having that deep empathy. The other thing I find, John is sometimes we do all this research when we're starting out with a new client and then we get busy and let's say you're about three or four sessions in and the sessions are only monthly and you mo- you're going from one Zoom meeting to the next and all of a sudden you're coaching this person in 15 minutes and you're like, oh, my goodness, what did they say? <laughs> what did they say last month they were going to work on, let alone really doing revisiting your homework in the way that they really view the world and what's important yeah. to them. So I think it's, I think blocking out time is important too to be able to do oh. that. Mm, love that. Absolutely. Right. I mean, it's more than the time in front of them, obviously. It's, you know, having a practice of excellence that extends well before you can get there. And that's what we're, uh, we are all about on the podcast. How can we create a practice of excellence to give the best to our, to our players, to our clients, to whoever we're, we're working with. All right, our next question is uh, our sliding doors question. You love to call them tipping points. We have yeah. many throughout our life. Uh, I'm sure you've had lots of really cool ones, but is there one or two that you could share? Personally or professionally? Um, Ooh, well, one, actually, one of each. Look at me. I'm, I'm on the They kind of interact today. in some way. <laughs> In my world, it, now that I think about it, it's hard to separate because I, I love what I do and I do what I love. But, I mean, there was a point where that wasn't the case. So I did separate them at one point. Mm-hmm. But I think in the very, very earliest days was a rather unusual one in that uh, I was backpacking and uh, uh, I had a, uh, got really sick. And so the cheapest place to hold myself up was uh, you know, sort of the outskirts of Prague. And if you can imagine this place, it's not only a long train trip or tram trip in that case but it's so unsafe that there's cyclone fences and razor wire around all, all the properties so I you know and I got really sick and I was out there and I wasn't thinking straight and um I was about to run out of money and so I thought well what do I do and someone suggested in the hostel that I was at why don't you apply for a British working holiday visa and I knew that took about three months to get um and i said that and i and and he rightly said but you've got nothing to lose I was, yeah so so i took the train down to budapest and uh i the lady at the desk said uh come back in three days i said why she said the consulate general's moving back to london he wants all the paperwork done before he goes so i got a three-month visa in three days and so with a reverse charge to call to my parents to get, get me some money to get to London, I ended up living in London for a few years. And oh, wow. that really uh, ch- transformed the way I think, the way I, they operate, because 
you know, Melbourne, as, as much as it's an international city, back then was felt like a small town. And, you know, I, I was able to learn, evolve, grow and experience so many things that I just couldn't have in my hometown. It wasn't a, a part of the plan at all, but it's amazing what turns up. And amazing what happens when you simply ask the question. And another another simple question is, what have you got to lose? We yeah. so often get stuck in excuses and we get in our own way, don't we? Yeah, for sure, for mm. sure. I could mm. still do that one better, but I hear you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. Uh, the next question is our guiding question. And since I saw you last, I even have written a book on it. Uh, you feature in the book because, you know, again, you were instrumental in, in helping me really shape some of my thoughts into a logical sequence back in the day. Uh, back then, you said listening, faith and patience. And I also asked you what makes a great TED speaker. And you said uh, being open, coachable and curious. So having said all that, as you sit here today, can you tell us in one to a maximum of three words, what do you think makes a great coach? I think I think observant and open are still in there. And I would probably add, gosh, only three words, m maybe empathetic. I, th I think you've really got to put yourself in your coachee's shoes and really live their world. Otherwise, it's, you know, as I said before, you, you, you could take them down the wrong path. Mm, absolutely. Do you want to, can you expand on observant and open? Observant is really around attention to detail on every micro facet of their thinking, their doing, their action, their practice, their being. See if you can spot a pattern or a schism that's potentially undoing or enabling their greatness and really tap into that. So you've got to really have a strong attention to detail. The other part is really around a consistent uh, methodology. And this is for them and for yourself, but without a baseline, you can't measure improvement or direction. And a lot of people, it's very easy in any day of the week to just get up and do what you do. But without understanding what your baseline is, you really can't measure where you're going, whether you're successful, and even if it's turning out the way you intended, because you've got nothing to compare to. And I think you've always got to be comparing it mostly to yourself, but occasionally to outside factors. But I would say, you know, you've, you've got to be able to make that equivalence. Otherwise, you're just doing what you do and that's nice, but it might not go anywhere. And so, uh, and the open piece? You just have to be honest that one day you might be wrong. Or you might not have all the answers. Or you don't have the real clarity that you really should have. I, I think if you're not vulnerable to the fact, or open to the fact that you might be wrong, then you'll never learn and grow and evolve. Yeah, Satya Nadella from Microsoft's one of his goals was very early states was shift from a know it all to a learn it all, and yeah, you know, and that that has been transformational for Microsoft since he's taken it over. And I, I think it's transformational at anyone. Yeah, a learn it all. Oh, I like that one. Mm. That one down. That that's a that's a ripper. 
Fantastic. Learn it all and learn it all. <laughs> Remember when you were kids and you'd be like, oh, you just, you're a know-it-all. <laughs> totally, totally open to exploring and making mistakes and falling yeah. over and getting back up. Yeah. You know, because I mean, maybe you've been a cheerleader like adults and role models, but, you know, that doesn't mean you can't do it. And, you know, maybe we need some of that in our adult life too. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Definitely. All right. Our last official question before I get to go rogue is where mm-hmm. we ask you to ask us a question. So what sparks your curiosity? What do you always want to know more about? I've always been fascinated by what drives someone to do something. So the human psyche. And so for me, uh, that's really become uh, an inner exploration about how I think, how I act, how I operate, who I am. And by extension, therefore, everything I do is an expression of those elements. And so, you know, I really like to unpack that because then hopefully you're finding some sort of parallels or lessons or equivalents that you could help someone else realise as well. And then it's almost like decision-making can become easier can't it when everything's more yeah. it's what you said earlier about do you want a personal or a professional and now it sounds like they're a little bit more blended because you 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 love what you do totally totally i look I, I i'm not saying that's an easy journey by the way i reckon it took at least 10 years to unravel unwind decouple myself from the things i'd committed to and my own psyche and my own self identity in order to find the new direction that I needed to take and the new person I needed to be to get there. Mm. Yep. So can we uh, go down the road of exploring a little bit on data versus, you know, being a coach? Yep. And I've, you know, reading here in your bio as well around you did some research looking at uh, what causes someone to pause, rewind or abandon a TED Talk. Yeah. I'm an ex-IT guy. So I love data. I love analytics. And I was in the speaking world, which is arguably largely an art. And I was really working with a whole bunch of co- uh, speakers in the very early days. And because I'd watched, I don't know, by the point, thousands of TED Talks, when people were asking advice, I'd basically go, oh, it, you know, try this, try this, try this. And, and, and that's the art side of it. I, I think that, you know, without that creative side, you really never get anything unique or special. At the same time, there's a whole bunch of things that can make the basics much easier to progress. The fundamentals, the found, foundations, the framework. And I couldn't find any. And as I was looking through the TED Talks, one of the back-end data elements that I was able to discover to, your, uh, to, to what you just said a moment ago, I found some data around when someone would pause, rewind, or abandon a video. And I thought, if I rewound that and I could discover what that person said or did, could I predictably um, work out the probability of someone abandoning the video in the next, say, 20 seconds, 30 seconds? And so I built statistical models around this and sort of used that as scaffolding, as a framework to um, build more successful and more consistently high-quality presentations. And I remember in very early days, people were going, oh, I don't like rules when it comes to speaking. But I think you need rules to an extent in the same way that you need, you know, road rules. You know, 
when you see that red light, you hope everyone across the planet agrees that all is the same thing for everyone. You know, <laughs> uh, when you agree, when there's a give way, that we all agree that that give way holds no matter where you are in the traffic system, any country. And so you do need these frameworks in order to maintain safety and integrity, but there's no rule that says how you get there or how fast you get there or what route you take to get there. And so that's the creative side. And so for me, it was a real sort of aha moment that you could blend the structure and still have that creativity and still create something that's unique and differentiated and minimize the amount of heavy lifting that you ugly have to do every single time. And so that became sort of the mental model that I now not only use in helping people speak and present, but how I operate my life. And so it was a really nice crossover. Can you give us a little bit more of the juicy findings? Gosh. <laughs> Just even one, one top tip. Curious, why do people stop the video? There are multiple reasons why people pause, rewind, or abandon video. Uh, if they're pausing, they're more likely to be reflecting. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they're rewinding, they're more likely to be reflecting. So it gives you proportionally a, a good number of elements that you can sort of spot. If they're abandoning, they either didn't like it or they're going to come back. Now, the odds of them coming back is pretty low. So you, I think you can safe to say that you can pretty much assume they're not interested. And they're not interested for multiple reasons. The speaker's not interesting. The idea is too complicated or it wasn't the idea they expected. Mm. And so, you know, and they're the only things. And so everything else is just a variation of those three things. And so it's right. about knowing why people engage and why they disengage that gives us, the, I guess, the skill sets and the preparation to make sure that that abandonment isn't going to happen yeah and so the ability to say the right thing the right time the right person the right way then becomes the craft of speaking that i was referring to earlier bunch of stats and data around speaking and influence yeah. that um, i refer to on a consistent basis most people it takes about eight drafts before they're even comfortable sharing it with the world a typical draft might take anywhere between half a day and a week of development time um having said that with chat gpt I reckon you can accelerate the first three drafts to near instant, like less than an hour now, which means the caliber and quality of the baseline talks will go up, but also hopefully the quality will go at the top end as well. Fingers crossed. I'm not seeing that yet, but that's what I'm hoping. And you know, these elements reliably predict the quality and caliber and the consistency of the work that you produce. Mm -hmm. Now, then the next question is, what would it take to commit you know, to find those drafts. And so yeah, that that's determined on how important the message is. If you're just speaking to your kids, maybe the preparation isn't as important as speaking to the chair of the board if it's a work context. Mm. You know, it's the exact opposite in a personal life, obviously. But, you know, you need to be able to prioritise. And then even then, once you memorise the, the key, key points, the key bullet points, it'll take probably... Uh, 25 times before you're familiar with the content and then 50 times before what I call a lived experience. You own it, you live it, you breathe it. And that's the equivalent of being able to do it without thinking about it. Mm. You know? um, and I would argue for the critical elements in any conversation, if you don't have that under your belt, 
then you're relying on chance. And hope is not a strategy when you're trying to influence someone, especially if you only have one shot at it. Yeah. So there's a whole bunch of ratios that I work with with people to, to let them know that, okay, before you get to the eighth draft, it's okay for that draft to look terrible and it's okay to feel terrible and it's okay that it doesn't feel right because that's part of the process because that can stop a lot of people. I call it messy middle, right? It's It seems really easy to write stuff down, but it seems hard work to refine or define and then refine. And that's the iterative process and that's the not fun part, but it's the compulsory part. Yeah, I remember uh, just having so many ideas in my head. <laughs> yeah. Like, I want to share this with the world, but I want to share this and this and this and this. And being able to yeah. narrow, narrow down the, the key points in the amount of time you have, it's... Uh, totally. And look, if it's clear in your head, it can be clear in your audience's head. If it's not clear in your head, your audience hasn't got a chance. And so yeah. you need to be really clear about what that thing is. And in my experience, 98% of people have at least anywhere between 60 and 90% too much content. So effectively, you're halving or your third, you're creating a third of too much content in any given message. Right there. Great tip. Cut it back, cut it back, cut it back. It's the same thing. I've got a one-hour webinar this Friday and I did exactly that this morning. I was like, well, just put it all out on paper and then cut yeah. half of it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly, because it forces you to go, this absolutely needs to be there. And that's where the first principles becomes really important because it, once you've culled it back, you go, well, what of, what of what's remaining, if I removed any one element there, would that idea still fly? And if it does, then you still haven't culled it back enough. Yeah. So what is second-order consequences? So second-order consequences, and this is in the speaking communication influence world in particular, it's about understanding what I call the consequence of the consequence. So let me put this in another way. Self-driving cars. I, I can't wait to get one. I think they'll be absolutely fascinating. Now, my local council here, over half their revenue comes from parking fines. What happens if a self-driving car leaves before it overstays? What does it mean for that council? So that's a first-order consequence. But then, and, 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 and in the US equivalent, you know, for every, uh, for every car on the road, there's seven car spots. What does it mean for land availability and car parking spaces? Especially in expensive areas like Manhattan, where I think it was 30% of their footprint was car parking space. So what happens in the next 10 years, 15 years, where suddenly 30% of the land comes back? You know, what does it mean for public transport? What does it mean for um, traffic densities? And so the second order consequence would be, what does it mean for land prices? What does it mean for insurance? If you had a self-driving car, would you live as close to your workplace as you would? What does it mean for land prices and home insurance? What is it? You know, all these other things are dramatically impacted by a single technology. And so the consequence of the consequence is understanding the ramifications. If the entire world went that direction, not only what would happen, but what would happen after that, you know? Mm. And, and you know, the, I think land prices are going to dramatically drop. Mm. 
I think insurance is going to dramatically drop in cars and homes. I think pollution is going to dramatically drop because we'll decentralize, we'll still produce the same amount of pollution, but we will decentralize it. Or all these major factors in terms of quality of life, simply because someone's invented something that will literally be on our doorstep within our lifetime. Absolutely. And I think every time we do a talk and even just asking ourselves what we want the audience to walk away with is really the consequence oh. of the, the principles that we put out there. Totally. Is what I'm sort of what hearing. What you need to think, feel and do. Yeah. yeah. I, I tell my speakers their ideas worth spreading. This is the TED line, ideas worth spreading. They're not lectures worth learning. Mm. You know, no one needs to be lectured. You know, if you're going to share information, put it in an email and put it on a website. It's much more efficient. Mm. When we're speaking, when we're influencing, it's actually an opportunity to engage, build rapport, establish or build a relationship. Yeah. That's the purpose of speaking. You know, everything else is just information transfer. Mm. And mm. no one cares about information transfer. Mm. You know, everyone knows you should eat well, do lots of exercise. No one does it. <laughs> you know, just because you know something doesn't mean people do something. Yeah. And so, you know, if your job, if you think your job is to help people to know something, then you're missing the point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious to ask you about girls in tech. Uh, I know you're doing a lot of work there all around the world uh, in mm. um, inspiring this next generation. So tell me, what are, what are some of their biggest challenges and how do you, from a coaching perspective, help them work through those challenges? I think there's multiple layers to this. This is where the first principles part is. There's bits you can do immediately in front of you and there's bits that you can do that are going to build the future of that space. The single biggest challenge, I think, is making you know STEM, science, technology, engineering, maths, more appealing to girls at a younger age. There are a handful of things that stop that, and I can't for the life of me remember what they are, but uh, I, I do know someone who wrote a book about it, and that's where I got the ideas from. I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you later, maybe put it in the show notes. Sarah Moran's her name, but I can't remember the name of her book, where she identified the three areas for girls that cause them to get turned off by STEM. So that 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 raise automatically raises the pool of availability. Then at the actual business end of things, literally, I think there's a whole bunch of bias. I think there's a whole bunch of um, the way businesses are operated. And I think there's a whole bunch of elements in the workforce that make it difficult for women to stay in the workforce. The average office is built for a man in their 40s at a temperature they like, things within arm's length of what he can reach. So basically anyone who's a woman who on average is slightly shorter and slightly different body temperature is instantly less productive and less comfortable in a space that they're literally going to every single day. So that's the first thing. Then there's this understanding, well, what's causing that? And I think we have a whole bunch of assumptions. And this is where data can be helpful and not helpful. There's a book by, called Invisible Women by uh, Caroline Criado-Perez. And in there, she's talking about uh, crash test dummies. And uh, crash test dummies are made for male height, male uh, weight. 
when they realized that, they introduced female crash test dummies. And so at the moment, there's only 14% of that data that has female height and weight crash test dummies. But what's really interesting about that 14% is none of them have women in the driver's seat. <laughs> so all the seats, all the airbags, all the seat belts are designed for men. So, you know, even when you apply the data, you've got to understand the source of your source in order to really understand, is this an actual fact or is this a systemic bias? And I think if men had a closer look at that, they would be just shocked about, you know, some of the more fundamental things to disable women to be more effective in the workforce. And then that's just not, that's not even, you know, that, excluding, you know, the fact that they're not even there and there's a whole bunch of cronyism and boys club type mentalities in a lot of industries that are still there. I mean, you know, that's just functional stuff. And then there's mental stuff. Mm. And so, you know, I, I think um, that men need to be honest about the fact that, they're successful because the world is built for them. And I would even go so far as to say, in many cases, white Anglo-Saxon male. And, you know, there's there's extraordinary amounts of data. But like I said, just because there's data doesn't mean people will move. And this is where the curiosity and open-mindedness needs to come into it. Because until you have both those together, that shift at a fundamental base level won't ever move. And I think that curiosity is yeah, has to be center at front in our coaching toolkit these days the minute we lose that we're, we're in trouble uh all right so in studying the masters of the greats i, I know that you you've seen you, you said you've seen a lot of talks one that Perhaps you're like, you know what, if there's one or two that we could watch, besides mine, of course, Unleashing Female Potential, <laughs> um, is there one or two that you could share? In, and what is it about them that's mastery? In terms of TED Talks, is that yeah. what you're referring to? Yep. So uh, there's two that are really clever because of their simplicity and their profoundness. So the first one is by Derek Sivers, S-I-V-E-R-S. He has someone, uh, something called uh, weird or just different. And that speaks exactly what we are just talking about, the bias we have. In his case, he's talking about Eastern and Western Hemisphere as well, that we have that we just don't see, that just, for me, really gets down to the, the core principles and in, in the implications and dangers of assumptions and biases. And the other one that I really like is... Um, it's called How to Tie Your Shoelaces, and I'm trying to remember the guy's name. And I love it because it's simple. It's respectful to the audience. He's not dumbing it down, but he's he's helping people understand the simplicity and elegance of the idea and still being inclusive and respective, uh, respectful sorry, of the people in the audience. So he includes them in the narrative. He includes them in the conversation. So great speakers are able to create this two-way dynamic that is unique, um, that, that moves above, I'm going to tell you what I know because I'm brilliant, to, oh, I noticed this. This is rather curious. I thought you might be interested too. And then we have uh, a peer-level conversation where people are side-by-side side able to explore an idea 
that they might know about or not uh, in a new way rather than an adversarial one. And, you know, the Western Hemisphere has been largely brought up by adversarial models of how we can operate and, you know, survival of the fittest and all that sort of stuff. But the reality is the vast majority of success in nature in particular is symbiotic, way more than adversarial, like by massive proportions. And I don't think we value uh, symbiotic uh, relationships nearly enough in the way we operate as a species. And, you know, the planet is a classic example of that. We've competed with the planet. It's about to hit self-destruct mode. And let's be honest, the planet's been here way longer than humanity is. The planet's going to win. And so, you know, until we choose to be symbiotic with it, to stop contributing, even if you don't believe in, you know, climate change, that you've just got to stop. I don't know if I can say this, but, you know, uh, someone said in nature, you know, birds don't crap in their nests for a reason, you know, um, and uh, I, I think the same could, should be said for humanity. We shouldn't be crapping in our own nest. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, there's so much more we could uh, dive into. Uh, honestly, it's been a fascinating conversation. Never long enough with you, Mr. John Yo. Uh, all our power analogies. Uh, I hope that everyone really lets go of their assumptions, is as observant as you can, take, take care of the little things to watch out for, be open, empathetic, and always curious so that we can think, feel, and do things better for humanity in a symbiotic um, way. Um, <laughs> you know what's really nice? If yes. you are able to adhere to that, the joy of life seems to just show itself. Mm. Yeah. And, and the struggle disappears. It's beautiful. Something very deep for us to reflect on, John. I wouldn't yeah. expect anything less. Listen, mate, um, really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for no being on the show. And, uh, yeah, I'll um, put all your details in the show notes. But uh, a, a real a real pleasure always to, to speak with you and learn from you. Uh, and I'm going to be a learn. I'm going to be a learn it all. Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> Thanks again. No worries. Good to see you again, Emma. You too. The Coaching Podcast is sponsored by The Samson Agency, a boutique talent agency managing entertainers, artists, and athletes. You can learn more at thesamsonagency.com. And if you're interested in becoming a coach, check out opendoorcoachingusa.com for all our latest courses in Leader as Coach and our High Performance Workplace Coaching Certification. And if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to give it a rating and a review on your podcast listening device. Thanks for listening.